in Wiggletown, the young are old, the milk is hot, the tea is cold. The wise are fools, straight lines are bent, a square is round, the loudest bells don't make a sound, there are no rules. The shorter tall, the taller short, the fishes fish, the men get caught. The food is wet, the water's dry, the tearful laugh, the happy sigh. That's the wonder of Wiggletown. It might reflect my stage of life, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about these lyrics from the Wiggles lately. Uh, for me, they echo something of the topsy-turvy nature Jesus cast the kingdom of God in, in his parables. Uh, or maybe the subversive stumbling block the cross of Christ provides in Pauline thought. And that leads me to wonder whether the mission of the church is reflective of this surprising, joyous subversion of expectations or whether it remains predominantly determined by the status quo of colonial paternalism, normative whiteness, and superficial relationships as a bridge to assimilation. And if the church can't be the church of Wiggletown, what hopes to have in the wild? The wild, according to today's guest, is a new space not designed for white supremacy, a place for an ongoing development and creation of ideas moving towards a more holistic space in which all are truly welcomed and embraced. And what kind of missiology is needed for this post-civil rights context? What is needed for the wild? Surprisingly, my guest does not turn to the music of the Wiggles. My name is Liam Miller and this is Love, Rinse, Repeat. Today's guest is Daniel Whitehodge, Associate Professor of Communication at North Park University in Chicago. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hip-Hop Studies and author of Heaven Has a Ghetto, The Soul of Hip-Hop, Hip-Hop Hostile Gospel, and his latest, which we are discussing today, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. In this most important book, Dr. Hodge writes, Western evangelism has run its course. There is not much we can salvage from it. Hip-hop theology creates space for multi-ethnic voices to imagine God and heaven while filled with doubt. It allows us to live in ambiguity while still seeking the face of God. Hip-hop theology gives credence to love, unity, peace, and fellowship with God from the context of a multi-ethnic and intercultural perspective. This is where missiology needs to go. And together, we can begin to reconstruct what Christianity looks like in the wild for a generation seeking new and fresh symbols of Jesus. Please welcome Dr. Hodge to love, rinse, repeat. Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat and let us welcome Daniel White Hodge to the episode, to this special recording. I'm very excited to be talking today, particularly about homeland insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. Uh, that's good. That'll be the screenshot right there for the interview, the two of us holding up go. the book. That's, there you go. That's right. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out. And uh, I'm excited to be on and have a conversation. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I was thinking before we get to the book, um, you, you host a podcast yourself. You host Profane Faith. Um, which yes, is an sir. excellent podcast. And it's always thank funny you, to be you. interviewing someone who is familiar with the form. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. How have you found the, uh, the podcast world and, and, and been able to have, you know, some really interesting conversations over, over on your, um, your podcast? 
No, thank you. Absolutely. I, you know, I, at least for us here in the United States, after the 2016, you know, presidential election, um, I was all, you know, I was already into podcasts and I just like the on-demand style and you can, you know, download it. I've always kind of been into radio most of my life. I've been kind of a gearhead and whatnot. And so it just, it dawned on me. I don't know why I hadn't before, like, dude, you should really start a podcast. And so it's been great. Um, you know, of course, as most people who get into this, you ask all the technical questions, like, how do you get a computer to record stuff? And then what is an RSS feed? And then, and, and how do you upload and whatnot? But I've been very thankful to have friends that, um, have helped. And I've found just the interacting between folks, uh, that are halfway across the world. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing to kind of see, you know, the download, the stats and all that and, and whatnot. Um, uh, but mainly I, I love the conversations that I, we can, I feel the freedom to have in that space regarding race, gender, culture, religion, faith. How do those things come together at a time where I feel like a lot of us on this planet are trying to figure out what does that look like for the next 50 years, 100 years? And so that's, for me at least, is my little slice of the, the digital world of just to kind of be able to say, all right, let me put my little marker here. And it's been a good platform, too, to talk about my own stuff as well, books, publications, thoughts that I'm having. Uh, so I've loved it. I've absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I think one thing I really like about your podcast is like sometimes you'll have you know, an overall theme that is holding episodes together but then there's also it often seems to be able to very responsive to well something happened in the world that we need to talk crazy rich asians came out and was a mega hit let's (laughs) that's right let's talk about that yeah yes yeah and that's and that's again you know that exactly exactly i mean i think there are certain things it's like you know i was in season three break and then all these you know mass shootings Mm -hmm. started happening here over the summer so i was like all right i gotta convene some some folks to talk about this and you know let's at least have a conversation so Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's been and that's been nice to have that to have that format um set up and quite honestly it's it's been nice uh to have the freedom i've i've worked in radio like the old school radio with the reels in the back and everything and you know it's yeah you you've got to move and especially on live shows and, and whatnot there's mm-hmm. certain things and most of the times you have your schedule booked out for the next you know three months so it's nice to have that flexibility yeah. Oh, well, let's let's move to the book then. Um, yes. It's just, just as an overall, just an overarching question to wade into to talking about more specifics. Was there any particular? I guess what was the particular impetus that goes? This is the book I got to write because you know, <laughs> writing a book is not a, uh, a spur of the moment thing. It takes time. Takes yes. Patience. Takes work. What was it that was like? This is what I want to devote. Uh, these questions are what I want to devote a bunch of time to. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the genesis for this book really started back when I was in grad school and looking at what missions was, right? Defining missiology. Um, And I remember one class, and I talk about this in one of the stories in the book, like, you know, one of the classes I had was, you know, kind of a history of missions. And so the final project was to to catalog, if you will, almost a, a program evaluation of some kind of uh, mission organization that's been around for a while and it's reached people. And so, of course, I posited like, well, hip hop, hip hop is that. But my professor at the time was like dead set against it and was like, no, no, we're not going to do that. There's no scholarly merit to that. And so, you know, of course, I had to go with something else. But it got me thinking, though, because I was like, huh. So wait a minute, there's some, because there's some components that fit here. So obviously, you know, this started as an academic paper and, you know, made its way through the circuits uh, and then building on that. 
Um, and I started writing on this actually in 2015, but again, after the 2016 election, um, I was about 160, 170 pages in, and I was looking at what I was writing, and I was like, this is crap. Um, I cannot put this out. Uh, I don't want to put this out anymore. And yes, I know I've invested some time, obviously, like you said, I mean, monographs, Ooh, their work. I mean, you know, and as a family man, you know, somebody who's married, you got to tell your wife, you got to tell the kids, okay, not right. Dad's got to go finish this book. And so it's like, they take, it takes a lot. It's a big commitment. So to scrap a hundred and, you know, 50 plus pages, I had to go and talk with my wife. Like, look, I can't write this. And she was like, absolutely. You can't. So I literally scrapped all of that and started from scratch. Um, and just really wrote from the heart uh, about what I felt needed to be said in regards to missions, uh, colonialization, uh, evangelicalism, and where I felt like, you know, hip hop, if embraced, could really potentially provide us a space, not the complete solution, not the, the magic sauce, right? Like, no, but they could provide us a space to help us through uh, some of the some of the issues that we find ourselves in, particularly in Western Christianity. Um, but I say at the beginning of the book, you know, this is not a book with answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in my previous works. I fell into that trap, especially right for evangelical writing. It's like, you know, people always want some answer at the end, like, OK, yeah, it's bad. The world is falling apart. But what do we do? And and tell us it's going to be OK. Right. By ch chapter X, whatever you got, tell us it's going to be OK. And I was like, I'm, I'm not I'm not. I don't know what the, the future is going to hold. Um, and so uh, that was kind of the, the start. And um, I had originally a, a guy named by the name of Dr. David Congdon, who was my editor, uh, probably the best editor I've worked with um, in my writing career. And uh, he gave great insight. He was honest. And it wasn't just, a, oh, I don't agree with this. And let me just throw it out the window. Just like, no, like, you know, like he was pushing me to say more. Um, and even, you know, even in the, the first draft of, of what I rewrote, he was like, this, you know, uh, this isn't really, you got to go harder. You got to go harder. I was like, okay, all right, all right. So I appreciated that. Um, and then he goes and gets fired, right? You know, from this Christian publisher uh, because of his, his latest book and works and everything. And so that really, again, resonated uh, with me that like, we, we got some problems here. You know, and we got some major issues. Um, and again, I'm not the only one saying these, but look, here's a book, here's some research that maybe you can get your head around uh, to begin to kind of think through some of these things. Mm. That's really helpful. And, and you're right, like you, when you're reading the book, you know, your passion, your heart comes through really strongly. It's, it's, it's written with, you know, obviously scholarly rigor and well-built arguments, but a lot of, you know, emotion and personality in it. Uh, and part of the book is also, you know, it does include your stories um, or encounters you've had um, and also interviews with others, um, particularly younger folks who have um, encountered white-led urban um, yes. ministries or short-term missions. Um, how important it was for you to kind of, I guess, use that, you know, these, these interviews and this data structure in the book? Because, again, it's not always something you find in, in theological texts, often it's like, I am in my room. These are all thoughts that came to me independent <laughs> yeah. of anything. And here they yes. are. But you're like, oh, like, look, I listen to people and that shaped the book. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And again, thank you. I'm, um, I'm, I'm honored that you would say that. I mean, because I think that was part of what I wanted to introduce. Um, I, was, I was trained to, to that way, you know, when I was working on my PhD to think through and allow the data to speak. 
Um, and yes, you're right. There was so many books that I'd read that I'm just like, okay, you know, you get to page 300 of some theological text and they're like, all right, everything I just said, I'm going to disagree with. And I'm just like, ah, you're killing me. How am I supposed to write a two page review on you? Like, this is crazy. So I was like, okay, let me at least, let me, and and that's a, and and, and I get that. That's a type of academic rigor in and of itself. But I knew for me, that wasn't who I was. It's like, you know, I wanted to present material um, from the people's voice. And so, yes, that was something that I knew I wanted from the beginning. Uh, something that I've even had, even all the going all the way back to my undergraduate program, um, uh, we had to do a capstone uh, and spend a year, you know, in like applied research and methods and whatnot. And I even then, it's like I wanted, again, the data to speak with what was happening. Um, and so I've really tried and worked hard to have that be the case. And then of course, to supplement that with some of the, okay, I'm in my room now and let me think about some of these things, um, you know, theologically and, and metaphysically about how they would, you know, impact us, especially as we think about where we find ourselves and not just the United States either, but I would really say the world. And as we're shifting, right, we see this cultural shift, this ideological shift, um, where a lot of places find themselves um, at. Yeah, that's uh, 100%. Uh, so at the genesis of the book, you write, lies uh, the Jay-Z and Kanye West song, No Church yeah. in the Wild. Yes. And the wild is, is a key idea running through the book. Um, the wild, you write at one point, symbolizes the uncharted, non-domesticated, non-evangelically tamed area of ideological thoughts theological principles, generational motifs of those from hip-hop and the urban multi-ethnic generation. Mm. Uh, talk to us a little more about the wild. It's a, it's a key yes. aspect of the book. And, you know, if there's no church there, uh, what needs to be there? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. That, and you know what? That was honestly the original title of this text. It was called No Church in the Wild. Um, I... I had fought hard to keep a lot of the stuff that I have in my footnotes and how I was saying it. I didn't feel like I had much, uh, many more coins left in the argument bank uh, with uh, the editors and the publisher to keep that name. I really did want to stick with that, No Church in the Wild, because it, it resonates with what I think. I mean, think what you want. I know Jay-Z right now is on some crazy stuff and Kanye is, Lord knows where Kanye is at. But that particular song, when it talks about, you know, what's a God to a king that don't believe in anything, I'm like, okay, that boom, that for me captured what I was trying to get at. Like, what does it mean if we take all this theological thought, right? Uh, what does it mean to take these tracks to somebody who, again, I don't believe in anything. And when we think about the age of information, um, and the access that young people have. I think about my daughter um, and the amount of access and material she has just on YouTube, just on YouTube alone. I mean, even the question now, right, of how your education comes up to say, why do we need schools? Like, if I'm, if I'm trying to figure something out, can I just figure that out on YouTube? Or maybe I'll go to Udemy, you know, class, pay 12 bucks for, for something, and I'll just learn it that way, right? Um, now, of course, that's an argument to be made on, on either side, but it's real, right now with where we're at and the same is applied with with church folks are asking the question why do i need to go to church seems like there's a bunch of rules there y'all want to exclude people all the time you can't really talk you can't fart you can't say anything i mean so it's like i i 
I can just do church on my own. And again, if I want some inspiration, well, I can go listen to Brene Brown on YouTube, or I can go to Twitter and follow the person that I actually really respect, and I can get just as much as I needed from church there than I could being in your congregation. And I know old heads like myself always stand back and be like, yeah, but what about the community and what about the coming together? Well, this generation, quite honestly, uh, has figured that out online. Um, and again, you can argue it back and forth, but the, 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 the cat is out the bag, as they say, and then the horse has left the barn. So for me, I was like, what does then church, if we're even gonna call it that anymore, look like in a place that doesn't believe in anything anyway, or conversely has multiple deities, right? It's like, well, let me take a little bit from here and let me take a little bit from over here. Here in the United States, you throw in ethnic minorities, particularly the African-American community. Um, and there's been a push away from Christianity because it's seen as the white man's religion. It's seen as already colonialistic. So why would I want to go to something that's been oppressing right? My foremothers and forefathers and, 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 and family members in the past. No, I'm going to go find something like the Zulu nation or five percenters of gods and earth, or I'm going to go and, you know, or maybe altogether, I'm just going to move to a humanist atheist perspective because mm, I don't know, the church has gotten it pretty wrong for the last 400 years. So what does, again, a congregation look like? I don't know, be honest with you. I mean, and that's part of what I'm trying to wrestle with in the church. I think we see spaces of it, I think we see somebody like Tupac wrestling with that, but you know, Tupac's been dead for over two decades. Um, and how does Kendrick Lamar then begin to kind of take up that mantle and, and challenge us to think through, right? Black Israelites, right? And challenges us to think through some of these things of salvation, metaphysics, all in his music. I mean, this is the Pulitzer Prize winner, right? I mean, so when you think about it, there's something going on that's bigger. And so I was like, well, let me, let me put this out there. And so I think, you know, the wild is just that definition. And I haven't seen much engagement, you know, from church folk. Um, and that's uh, disheartening. But I think the generations now are to the point where it's almost like, it's almost like, you know what, we asked. We were asking a long time ago. Now we're done. Bye. And so um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. Mm. I think that's, that's true. It's like it is to be found out. And, and hopefully people taking the critique or the, the, here, this is the landscape. Seriously, will will allow something to you know, hopefully new to emerge, and, and maybe we'll get to some of the ideas of uh, missiology as a civil yeah. civil disruption a bit later in the mm -hmm. chat. But that could be part of it. Uh, so the book provides a, a hip hop missiology. Yes. Uh, now, now hip hop and hip hop theology provide a framework for this and, and your earlier work, um, the soul of hip hop and, and hip hop's hostile gospel. Now. There might be some people listening to this, particularly outside of the U.S. context, um, who have a very narrow understanding of hip hop. You know, where it's basically just it's just a form of music, right? Um, and not only that, but isn't it? As I, I put out a question on Twitter, I will put out a tweet that does anyone want to ask? Yeah, <laughs> ask questions. Someone's like, "Well, how?" You know, tongue in cheekly, um, how can he be listening to hip hop with all those words? <laughs> right, um, right, right. So, but obviously you know, reading the book and, and, you know, just following the footnotes from the book, there's a, a whole world both beyond, you know, both in the popular culture and in the scholarly culture that uh, connects to hip hop. Um, so maybe just to give people this, you know, an appetizing taste to Absolutely. enter a world they have maybe not yet uh, looked into. <laughs> yes. um, what is, I guess, the, the, the power of hip hop for you as, as a much bigger 
thing than just like maybe how, how it is often narrowly categorized and, and its mm. power to maybe dismantle uh, missiological and theological systems that have been built on on, on white supremacy, sexism, and things like that. Yes. No, well, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think it's something that, you know, um, most folks who then think of hip hop and rap, especially in the, the current era, you know, think of it solely as, as a musical genre and then that's it, right? Um, and when we think about commercial rap, we tend to think about uh, just that, commercials, people selling stuff, talking about partying, talking about, you know, things that, again, in the wild, uh, things that most of the time the church shuns away from, right? Sexuality, human sexuality, um, you know, women gaining their own sexual independence when you think about somebody like Nicki Minaj or even Lil' Kim for that matter um, those are things typically frowned upon so it's like people are like oh no I'm that's just too secular it's too profane I don't want anything to do with it um, and well I think we have to talk about the commercialization I think that's also a very small part of the culture which as Karis one puts it who's a founding uh, member of the hip-hop community you know he says hip-hop is something that's being lived uh, rap is something that's being done. So anybody can rap, anybody. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're good. You may sell a million records or you may, you know, get streams. I know that's the new thing now. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're hip hop. And I know this is a controversial thing, right? I mean, this is something that I, you know, uh, I, I talk about with my students in my courses on hip hop. It's like, you know, who is hip hop? You know, can we include somebody, you know, like um, ASAP Rocky? Is he hip hop? Is he, or is he more commercial rapper? Is he, you know, and so, you know, that, that tension that exists. I don't know if I want to get into the nuts and bolts of that as much as I want to say that hip hop is a cultural standard. It is a, it is a way of living. So it's a process of understanding, right? Your consciousness, uh, your self-identity, uh, your connection to the spirit world. Like where do you see yourself in the ancestors um, and, and then connected to the greater being of God in those, in those spaces? Uh, most uh, hip hoppers uh, that are conscious and, and, and spiritually connected talk about a third eye, you know, really the third eye, you know, comes from the, from your mind. How are you opening up your mind, that third eye to see components of things and, and, and whatnot? How are you opening up your consciousness to become one with the earth? This is part of what even indigenous folks talk about, right? It's like becoming part of the earth, earth, wind, um, and, you know, and fire. Well, we, we, don't wanna, we don't wanna burn up, but that's a large part of hip hop culture and we see it in artists like Erica Badu. Um, sometimes, when you think of, uh, oh, I'm trying to think, my, I'm 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 spacing it now with with some of the other neo soul. But really, you know, the whole neo soul project is is looking at components of the mystic. And I think the mystic is something that's lost, particularly in Western Christianity. Uh, something at least for me, I've been on a journey to regain. Um, and so that I'm not just solely up here in my mind thinking about these things, but how do I embody my spirituality and my Christianity uh, so that it's lived. And that's part of what hip hop says to do, live it. Don't just talk about it because anybody can put on the gear, right? You can go out to a store right now and pick up anything that, that looks hip hop. Um, but is that really you? How do you embody that internally? And so that's part of the broader thing. And so within that, I've been able to finally, so I would make the argument that, you know, missiologically, uh, there are some big components there when we think about uh, cultural engagement, uh, awareness of, of God, you know, and then this, this, this sense of let's go and help others along with that. And let's try to do that 
in community. Let's not do that in solitary space or, or, or in, in a manner that would tear down somebody else. And for me, that's part of what a missiological experience is and a missiological engagement, right? The mission, the mission of God, the Missio Dei, um, is just that. And I feel like hip hop at its core uh, embodies that. That's really great. Thank you. And another thing you write about hip hop is, you know, provides a space for this generation of youth and emerging adults to one, find God in a contextual manner, two, have room for lament, ambiguity, doubt and the profane, and three, find diversity within Christianity and remain true to their own cultural heritage. Uh, and you've already been touching on that a bit in that, in that response. My, my thought was, I was wondering, was that your experience coming into hip hop um, as a you know, youth emerging adult? Was that already how it was framing your approach or did that something you kind of came to a bit later? I mean, I think it's both. I mean, it was there. I don't, I don't think as a kid I was necessarily able to articulate it, you know, obviously that way, but it was like, it was known, it was felt like, okay, hip-hop was that space. Um, and particularly in its early years, because uh, I'm still old enough to remember its early years, and so there was this sense of this is our stuff, this is our connection, this is our art form, Um and so, yes, I mean, I think as I got older, and of course, you know, I've talked about this in, in several different spaces, but as I got older, you know, fundamentalism kicked in. And so, of course, I saw rap and hip hop as secular and demonic. And, you know, how can we engage with that, you know, that world? But when I came back and came back into my right mind, um, hip hop was there. And that, you know, coincided with me being in grad school and being able to think about some of these things and how do I articulate those things with community with God with faith um, and and beginning to see um, because if we're going to articulate a, a, a theology for example of pop culture or as, excuse me a theology of film we have to then begin to say well then how does that also apply to hip-hop rap how does it apply you know and then for that matter um, when I think about punk and punk rock and what it what it brought in there's so many overviews and, and overlappings of punk, uh, particularly the you know '70s and '80s punk music and hip hop culture, that it's it's almost phenomenal. Um, you know, obviously different genres, but the ideological uh, premises are still the same. Uh, and and that's something that I think you know I, I'd love to see somebody do some work on that. You know, same thing with maybe uh, components of rock music is is as well. So it, so hip hop's not necessarily unique in this space, but I do feel like and it's what it makes it so unique is because ethnic minorities help create this from an impoverished, broken down space and still made it. It's like Tupac says, we, we, it was like the, the rose that grew from concrete, right? Um, it grew through the crack, it made its way through all those things. And so, of course, it's gonna be a little beat up at the, at the other side, but you don't wanna look at that. You wanna say, man, that's amazing that this rose even came up through the concrete. Yeah, that's really great and really, really helpful. And so the first part of the book is kind of a, you know, a deconstruction and a critique of, you know, the miss, um, how mission came to be what it is through the 20th century. Uh, and then kind of looking at short term missions and um, white urban, um, white led urban ministry. Uh, now, one thing you talk about is for those engaging in mission, particularly when crossing, I guess, crop cultural, racial class borders, uh, is not it's not only enough to do that kind of cultural exegesis on the on the context you're being sent, you know, having a quick session on hey, this is what you're going to see out there, what you're going to encounter. Um, work needs to be done to attend to the where you are coming from, the, the who yes. you are, the 
the atmosphere of, of privilege and assumed normativity and supremacy that you've um, kind of imbibed by growing up. Um, so I was wondering, though, like I, I guess maybe where you're leading to is that when people do that work, when people like do the work to realize, hey, the reason the people who live around me look like me and the people where we're going look differently and, and our homes look like this and theirs do, and you realize the structural forces that doing that is there is there any way that doesn't lead to going oh this is a bad idea that we're going in this context <laughs> in, in this manner I guess um, yes. or is there a way to kind of do that work and then still kind of experience a sentness? My gosh, I think that man, that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, before I get to that part, let me let me go back. I mean, I think yes, you're absolutely right. I think you know folks have to do more work on themselves because it's, it, you know, and, and again, I mean, I think folks like, you know, Soon Chan Rai have talked about this, right? It's like, if you haven't learned your own cultural, under you know, uh, amusings and, and backgrounds, you know, it, it's going to be difficult for you to, to enter into a different one and then not be able to differentiate because you'll bring the same culture that you've been growing up with. You'll bring that same mentality and think it's the right way. It's right. It's it's these assumptions of normality, these assumptions of normativity. Like you said, it's like these assumptions that, well, Hey, the way I was raised, this is the right way. We should all do it this way. Um, And so we see that, right. I mean, if you want to get deep about it, it's like, you know, when you think about parts of Africa, they have been colonized to look, you know, to look like white Western evangelical churches. And there's no reason why when Rick Warren, you know, came out with his book, Purpose Driven Church, you know, people in South Africa, Kenya, Zimbabwe, they all try to apply those principles and failed miserably. Why? Because it's a, it does not, it's a cultural book. It fit well in Southern California in an affluent community where people had the means to do some of these things, right? It does not work outside of that. And so, those are some of the things that I'm talking about. I mean, and to the point of what does that look like, you know, once people do that work? I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest. I'll be, I, I think we need a moratorium on short, short-term missions. I mean, I think we need to just stop. And I get it's a multi-billion dollar industry because there's money involved in this. Um, but I think we're doing more damage than anything, right? It's like, it's like here in the United States, like people who disagree with people coming across the border, but then we'll go to that same country, right? And want to build something in that country and, and think they're doing a good job. But no, please don't come to our country. If, if you know, if, if we've, you know, torn up your, your environment, you, we've, we've ravished your country of, of resources, but we'll come build a church and, and build a fence and whatnot. And so um, that's just not to me, that's just, we're no, 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 no. And that's part of the data that I was talking about in the, uh, you know, rather than using an international scope, which I think also this is where our missiology really um, does not do well at, is it's great on international. Oh, yeah, let's go to the jungles. Let's go to nations that have not been infiltrated by colonial. Let's go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about right across the street, right? What about right up the way here? Right about over here on this side of town over here? Have you been there? Have you looked at it? And I think it's difficult, right? Because you can go right to Somalia and be like, oh my gosh, this is just horrible. I, but I didn't have nothing to do with that. So let's help them, you know? <laughs> but here in the US, you know, especially for white folks, you know, they got to deal with the fact that, okay, wow, in the South, there's some crazy historical stuff. Why are we still holding up slave owners as heroes, right? Why are we still holding on to the, the, the um, you know, the rebel flag, the Confederate flag? I mean, those are things you got to face. And 
it it's not friendly. It's not it's not nice. And and so for me, I'm just like we need to we need to stop. And I think we need to really need re- need to reevaluate what the Great Commission looks like in the era of Trump. Um, and that's a big that's a big ask. That's a big ask. hundred oh, percent. One thing I liked is that you know you, you shifted from this idea of short term missions to you know lifelong or long term relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about like there's like stories you know here in Australia of like churches which will do short-term mission to like indigenous communities up on the North end, um, right. Which would be more, you know, separate. They'll go and do that. Um, but there are, you know, indigenous families, people living in, uh, in the streets around their churches who they have no relationship with and haven't sought that. Um, and it's this yeah. kind of thing of, well, we can keep it distant or we can keep it categorized as a thing where right. we go to serve and then they are the recipient of what we do rather than this could be a, a, a relationship of, you know, which actually where we have to grow and we, we might get challenged and where we might get, um, and we might actually make friends, you know, whatever exactly. it is. And um, it reminded me of the story you tell in the book of, you know, the when um, the person, one group, there was a, you know, bigger suburban church, white suburban church that had always been sending mission, but yeah. so they've been shrinking while the urban-led uh, ethnic minority church had been growing. And then the moment they were like, well, maybe we could come to you guys and teach it was uh, and and share and help yeah. you grow. Like, oh well, no, how dare you? <laughs> like, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And I think those attitudes, right? They can just continue to prevail because, it, right? If people come in with this assumption of superiority, I mean, in a large part of missions, right, have been this planting of a flag. We're here. We've brought the gospel. We are essentially better than you. There's really nothing you can teach us. We're here to teach you. We're here to help you. Um, and so it's, that's, I mean, for me, that type of arrogance, I mean, that's worthy of the auto da fe and the Spanish Inquisition, man. Mm. Um, a chapter I, I really loved, uh, a bit later in the book was, uh, baptized in dirty water, oh, learning yeah. from post-soul missiologists Tupac Amor Shakur and Kendrick Lamar. Now, I think if I'm right, you have a new book potentially coming out uh, that shares the title of this uh, chapter. Yes. Being on the yes. theology of yes. Tupac. Um, well, perhaps, I guess, can you, first of all, as an intro question, do you remember the first time you ever heard Tupac and his music? And then what has it that has kept you coming back to him, both as a figure and as an artist uh, and as, as someone who continues to shape your, your, your work? No, absolutely. I think, yeah, no, I can remember back. It was um, Holla If You Hear Me, and uh, it was the album was Strictly For My Niggas, and that was the first time I'd heard him. I, well, I'd heard him on the radio, I should say, on, you know, when he was with, um, oh, man, I'm spacing their name, man. It's been a long day. <laughs> um, oh, Digital Underground, there we go. When he was with Digital Underground, he was just kind of a backup and whatnot, and, um, but that was the first time I heard him. I was like, wow, man, this cat's got some stuff, and so Growing up in the on the west coast of, of the United States in California, in the Bay Area, and then in Southern California, I was exposed to, you know, firsthand to concerts and venues where Tupac was, um, you know, and, and, and fortunate to remember him alive, you know, and remember him at concerts, remember him in spaces and places, and right back when MTV was still MTV and showing videos of his and talking about new albums and, you know, him and, you know, Tabitha Soren, you know, those, those interviews are now, you know, infamous, they're legendary, you know, that she had with him. And remember listening to that, and again, um, thinking, man, the loss that we had uh, when he got shot the second time 
um, and then die, you know, on September 13th, 1996. And so, um, yeah, I still remember that. I remember exactly. I was in the studio and I remember somebody saying, man, you got to come to the TV. I remember coming out and just seeing that. And I was just floored. Everybody, I mean, it was just like a an eerie silence, right, that was there. And so, you know, I think why I keep coming back to him, I think that Tupac is this enigmatic figure within the hip hop cultural continuum that has really outlasted most of his, or all of his peers really, in terms of just a mantra or, or the image, right? Um, it's somebody that, you know, just the other day, uh, I saw one of my daughter's friends wearing a Tupac t-shirt. You know, they're 11, they're 12 years old. They were nowhere near, you know, alive when Tupac was around, but it con- he continues to be, I mean, as somebody put it to me, he's like, you know, he is the black Elvis, right? He is the, you know, this, this, this entity that represented, right, two sides of the coin. You know, he was both the yin and the yang. He was, you know, good on one end and the, and the, and the, the height of activism. Um, and at the same time, still embodied aspects of the, of, of the streets that, uh, you know, grinds those gears to a halt. You know, when you think about, um, you know, his mom being addicted to crack, you know, and, uh, you know, that having that connection and just what that meant for him. There's so much to unpack in the life of Tupac. And so, you know, my first book was, you know, um, Heaven Has a Ghetto. And so it's really examining hip hop. I'm mean, examining, excuse me, um, Tupac uh, in this kind of broad manner. So this book that's hopefully coming out here, I'm hoping by the end of the year, I just, in fact, today, I just approved the last of the uh, the, the, the copy edit. So, you know, it'll go now next to the printer. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this out. And this book is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be as, as heady and like, you know, it's not going to be 800 pages or whatever. So, um, I really wrote it for, uh, for an audience so that we can begin to embrace, you know, something broader than just Tupac, the right, the villain, which some people still make him out to be Tupac, the, the, the Mysterium, there's still this sense that Tupac was, you know, taken out by the Illuminati or taken out because, you know, him and Suge Knight couldn't get along and whatnot. Um, I mean, there's aspects, I think, of that that may be true, um, but I really wanted to kind of, again, refocus it on what was the spiritual nature of this brother and why are we still playing his music and admiring him today in 2019 when, you know, when you think about it, Easy e doesn't get that. He's been, and Easy has been dead longer than Tupac. Easy e died in what, 94? Um, and we don't remember him that way. I mean, most, most young people don't even know who that is. Maybe they might know a song of his, but I don't know if they'd be able to, you know, to, to, to pinpoint that. So when you think about somebody like Tupac, he is that representative of a spiritual deity. He is the go-between, if you will, uh, between God and humanity for a lot of people. So I figured, yeah, there's something to be studied here and something to be engaged with. And so um, I've been very fortunate to be, you know, to have access to, you know, some material of his. Hmm. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to to that book uh, immensely. Indeed, Um, indeed. So um, speaking, staying with Tupac, you write about him and, and Kendrick Lamar, how their music kind of contains three key gospel messages mm-hmm. of hold on, keep your head up, and heaven has a ghetto. Uh, how, you know, how important are these messages uh, in this kind of not only the post-civil rights context, but now even in this the post and continuing Trump context? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think they're... I mean, they think they're everlasting. I mean, because it's like we got to figure out like, okay, we know our ancestors have have been through much worse. um, And but we also have to figure out, okay, what does that look like in real time? Twitter didn't exist 400 years ago. So 
excuse me, how do we, how do we live, right? Our being, our personhood, you know, when our lives really don't matter, um, when we are attacked by the state, at least here in the U.S., you know, in other countries, I know it's different, but at least here in the U.S., we're looked at as the enemy. Just the color of my skin is the enemy. Um, that presents a whole, you know, um, it presents a whole facet of, of issues and problems all the way from depression and anxiety to sheer rage and, and, and outrage. And you see some of these things when you see uprisings in certain cities, whether they be Ferguson or Baltimore or Los Angeles for that matter. Um, and so Kendrick and Tupac continued to help us kind of interrogate some of those things. And what does it look like when we lose love societally? Um, and, you know, I, I think both of them do still do point, you know, paint that picture, like, you know, what the future, um, you know, might look like. And I think, obviously, I think Tupac's is probably a little bit more of a grimmer uh, of what the future may look like before it gets better uh, than, than Kendrick. But nevertheless, both of them are still saying, okay, yes, let's keep fighting, let's keep moving forward. Um, and let's keep, you know, talking about these things and getting them out there. Hopefully we can figure out some solutions. I mean, I think Tupac probably had much more of a pragmatic approach then probably Kendrick, you know, Tupac wanted to create a hip hop political candidate, um, you know, and wanted to have somebody run in the election of 2000 um, against both Democrats and Republicans. And, and he didn't want specifically, I don't want just a, a sole liberal or I don't want just a complete conservative. Like I want somebody representing us. And he was working towards that. I mean, he was he had money raised and everything. And so there was the thug life code, you know, thug life, as you know, is the hate you give little infants, F's everyone. And so. Um, you know, nigga for him, man, never ignorant, getting goals uh, accomplished. And so to the acronyms to which he's prescribed to, you know, there was tangible evidence that he was trying to move. To, and I'm not saying that Kendrick's not doing any of those things. Tupac just was much more visionary when it came towards we need to become this. I think if I had to rewrite that chapter now, I would include Nipsey Hussle uh, in this. I mean, I wrote that, you know, prior to his unfortunate and untimely death. Um, but I would I would include Nipsey because Nipsey was really one of the few rappers that tried to pick up that mantle and and not try to do all the spiritual stuff and write and all the community stuff organizing that that Tupac was trying to do, but to just focus on one area, financial independence, wealth, you know, particularly in communities of color. Um, and, you know, I mean, it same rumors, you know, revolve around Nipsey. People say, oh, it's because he was already presenting this holistic thing and trying to get people up out the game and everything that he was killed and stuff. And again, I haven't investigated enough. I can't necessarily say one way or the other, other than that the brother's dead and that we lost somebody who was great in the fight. Um, and I think Kendrick has talked about in interviews, like, I don't want to end up that way. You know, and that's a real thing, right? It's like, I don't want to end up like dead, you know, his brother's married, he wants a family and all this stuff. So it's like, I think we have to hold that intention as well, as, as particularly as black people. Um, you know, what does that look like? Because as Tupac said, death is unfortunately around every corner. Um, so yes, those are gospel messages, but it's almost like this tainted gospel message where it's like, you got this hope on one hand, but then this other kind of concern, if you will, in the other. Um, and that's kind of part of what, you know, it means to be living as an ethnic minority. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. That's really, really helpful and insightful. Um, one line you wrote in the book, which I, I think I turned into a gif when I read it, it was so, it had so much punch, um, was you write, um, reconciliation has no meaning other than marketable charm, um, which is great. Um, <laughs> uh, so from, 
So from your experience and in your work, what, what, I guess what are some of these steps that church, because reconciliation is, that's what we're all about, right? That's what right, our, our right. reason for existence is to make reconciliation happen. I'm, I'm hearing people say in the background right now, but, um, you know, you're trying to talk about reconciliation is just so often reduced to, hey, just be nice to people from other races um, and, and avoid conflict. And, uh, and often, as you kind of talked about in, in from the interviews you did, it's often the, the person who has been experiencing racial injustice or experiencing uh, microaggression or experiencing the outright racism, who, the person who brings that up is the one who's then said to be um, uh, shaking the reconciled relationships. Yes. You know, the, the person who's, yes. well, you're creating the issue here. Um, so <laughs> are, there, are there steps you've seen that are kind of, I guess, you know, possibly, you know, that people can begin to grasp that uh, can shift this kind of view of reconciliation about being nice and quiet um, to reconciliation is about um, transformation, repair, restitution, and, and an actual um, robust sense of justice. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a great question, right? I mean, and, you know, I think it's lines like that that don't get me, you know, any speaking invitations. Uh, and really, I mean, if I'm keeping it real, book sales aren't that great. I mean, right? Because it's like, again, we're dealing with something that is at in the pocketbooks of many people. It's, mm -hmm. it's and, and people of color included and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think at a core element of reconciliation, sure. Uh, let's do that. But that's going to begin to dismantle whiteness, white culture, white supremacy and white systems of oppression. And to do that is going to make whiteness so uncomfortable that it's turned into what it is now. It's a marketable thing to say, oh, let's reconcile. Let's come, you know, let's have a justice conference. It's like, really? What is that? Mm, okay, justice. Everybody want to do justice. Like everybody wants to talk about, for example, CCDA principles, Christian Community Development Association, which has been around for, you know, 30 plus years. And just now you see mainstream evangelical folks talking about, we need to be in the community. And it would be awesome if we got these organizations together and the church hosts them. It's like, well... John Perkins was talking about that in the 70s and, you know, we can follow the literature back to that. So I think there's a lot of us who kind of sit back and be like, reconciliation really lifts up whiteness. It wants to make whiteness. Here in the U.S., um, particularly, uh, feel comfortable, feel good about themselves, uh, feel like they don't really have to do much else other than come and say, I'm sorry. Uh, what, are you, what are you apologizing for, right? It's like, it's like when white people come to me, I'm just so sorry, like, what are you apologizing for? You know, especially if I don't even know you. Like, you know, you over here apologizing to me. So, no, I'm not for the process and really how neo-capitalism has taken over. Um, things like that, reconciliation, um, the word justice, the word um, equality. Now people are hopping on the whole prison industrial complex, which these are all things, right, that on paper sound amazing. Like, of course, don't you want the president, you know, who you've called a racist? Don't you want him talking about, you know, prison reform? Well, <laughs> if his actions have shown me that he's going to deny Bahamians entry into a country, uh, his actions have shown me that he's going to, you know, uh, disregard black life. Um, I have to believe that 
this is only a show and only a means for him to get reelected because it looks good on paper. The optics are good, you know, for prison reform. Nobody was talking about prison reform, you know, in this manner. Right. I mean, so I have to ask myself, what what does that look like from a dollars and cents? And it sells books. Oh, let's come together as one in the gospel. Oh, I don't see you as a, as a, as a color. You know, Jesus has no color. And these are things that, Brother Liam, that other black folk have told me. This isn't white people telling me this. This is other black people telling me. I mean, my pastor, who I love dearly, who baptized me 28, 78 years ago, however long you want to call it. And he would tell me, I'm, I'm a Christian first and I'm black second. And I'm like, well, hold up. I want to reimagine that and really kind of rethink that because I think, again, the mind, the colonized mind is capable of doing a lot of damage in a manner that looks like it's doing justice. And so when we think that we're actually trying to reconcile, I have to ask myself, what are your tangible results? What are the elements that you can point me to that say this is a result as a matter of that? When I think about here in Chicago where I live and in the community that I live at, it, you know, there's a church on every corner, but we still got poverty. We still got people shooting each other. In fact, yes, last night on my way to the Cubs game, we passing a murder scene. There, everything's taped off. The cops got the little yellow numbers down to show where the bullets are. And there's a big splotch of blood there as we're passing next to the bus stop. A church is literally 50, less than 50 yards away from this place. What is tangibly happening? And I think those are the bigger questions that in particular this generation is asking. It's like churches and colleges have been around for decades. What's the change? We still have somebody like Trump in office. We still are dealing with Ku Klux Klan members. We're still dealing, you know, with the rise of white supremacy, you know, white mass shooters that exist here in the United States. What has changed if reconciliation has really done its job? And so for me, it's BS until I can actually see something that moves beyond just the hugging and hugging out of things to, you know, actual tangible results. It's like when white folks try to come and tell me, oh, things are so much better now. Like, right. When did they change and what changed? Well, look at yourself. You're a, a doctorate a, a, in a position of power and you graduated. That wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. Maybe, maybe, but let's look at what it took for me to get there. Well, let's look at the elements that put me in this type of position. And that was, I didn't get here on my own. I think that's part of the myths. And so reconciliation is mythical. And so the mythic imagination, particularly of Christianity, uh, is dangerous when it comes to, you know, sales and honorariums uh, and conference numbers and stuff. Those type of things sell without really having to ever do the heavy lifting of what reconciliation really is. That's really, that's powerful and important. I was thinking during it, like when I was kind of growing up in school in like the 90s, that was like when a lot of reconciliation stuff was happening in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of black and white hand cutouts holding each other on. Yeah, cars. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it's just interesting in the way that if you can, if you were the government or whatever the white society can say reconciliation has happened, then any problems that Indigenous peoples uh, are facing is, well, that has to be their doing now because we've, we've reconciled. Um, we've we've exactly. done that work. We've apologised. Exactly. We've, we've done that. So if yep. there is still gaps in life expectancy and um, school graduation and whatever, that must be their, their problem now. Exactly. Uh, right. Well, so, yeah, showing up with actually you know, what is the 
metrics is really important. Yes. Yeah. Um, so toward the end of the book, um, we kind of touched on this earlier. You talk about um, civil disruption as missiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really important in this chapter, the way you kind of um, challenge that kind of universalizing ethics of nonviolence, which ignore that to say, to advocate for nonviolence is often comes from a place of privilege um, yes. and ignores the kind of hegemonic violence of the state and how that gets glorified while, you know, any urban violence is like denounced, demonized, dismissed, like ridiculously quickly. Um, and the importance of conflict, which comes up throughout the book, um, comes up here again, where, you know, you know, you're writing violence is not the answer, but we need to reframe the way we're thinking and talking about violence in a way that actually has some space for, for rebellion, for protest, for disruption. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and I guess particularly, you know, in the context of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and these movements, which can, you know, or, or the um, way Antifa and is so often talked about, um, there's these different um, levels and languages that get applied to violence. Um, uh, yeah, how has it been trying to introduce this conversation? <laughs> um, <I guess laughs> well, brother. In, in, oh, man. Uh, well, again, you know, those, 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 those don't sell. You know, those are not the books that sell. You know, the books that sell say that, oh, we should all be peaceful. And, you know, as Black people, we should never use violence. I heard one of my, you know... Um, theologians, you know, famous, I'm not going to mention his name, you know, but he, you know, he's a hero of mine, but it's like, you know, he was like, like no Bible believing Christian should ever have a gun or possess that advice, you know, and he was, he, he was clapped, he was clapping, standing ovation the whole nine. And I'm just like, well, again, <laughs> I got to step back and ask myself here in this country, I'm again, I, I, I know U.S. history, you know what I'm saying? Um, but in this country, uh, violence has been invoked uh, almost at every corner uh, from a historical perspective. You think about from 1776 of the founding of our quote unquote nation and everything um, that wasn't took by reconciliation. That wasn't took by having talks. That wasn't took by having these things that we're told to do. No, that was violently taken. Uh, and if it had not been for the prevailing winds uh, in the in the North Atlantic, uh, when the French were coming, because the French had, had said, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're, we'll support, we'll support Britain. You know, they were going to show up. If they had shown up, historians renownedly have said, you know, they they would have overrun and we, we, we would be looking at a different country right now, right? Um, but that would have, that wouldn't have been through negotiations. <laughs> that would have been through guns. Our nation has had about nine, maybe 12 years of so-called peace, everything else has been in a state of violence. And so I'm not advocating for violence. I don't want to live in Armageddon world. I don't want to live in the, in the walking dead world. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to live in the Mad Max world. Um, ironically enough, you know, that, you know, being, you know, out of Australia and whatnot, I think it was in Sydney or something like that in the original Mad Max, right. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> I don't want to live in that. I don't want to have to live in that. I don't think none of us do. And I'm not advocating for that, but I'm also saying, and conversely, what does it mean where I can travel literally nine miles from where I'm at right now, outside Chicago city limits, and there are 800 plus white militias who have pledged their allegiance to Donald Trump, and that if he's not reelected in 2020, 
there will be bloodshed. This, this, is, this just came out two weeks ago. What then does that say when they blame the reason our country is this way on me and people who look like me? Um, I don't know. And I don't, I don't, I do believe that nonviolence is, is a privileged position. I mean, it's ironic to think that the bodyguard of Martin Luther King, who had a gun on him all the time, had stepped away and to this day feels guilty that he wasn't there to either A, take the bullet or B, take the shooter out that killed Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, everybody in that environment of those days possessed guns and stuff. In fact, I just put out a whole podcast on this, on, um, uh, you know, talking about this, 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 uh, this very thing and stuff. And so, Again, I'm not advocating for violence. I don't want to go. I'm not going out and, and killing folk. I'm also, but I'm also thinking about you know self defense and what that looks like, um, and how that's engaged with um, in this era. Um, and I'm trying to ask myself, what does it look like in the next twenty years? Because even if we impeach Trump, the the issues that are here right now are not going away. Um, those militias are still going to exist. You can't impeach them. You, they're just not going to turn out and be like, oh, well, Donald Trump's gone. We're good. We, we had eight good years. That's, that's it. We're good. No. If anything, they're going to get more emboldened to do what it is they're doing. So what does that look like? I don't, I don't know, man. I wish I had the answer to that other than to say I advocate for gun black, black gun owners. Um, uh, here in Illinois, we are an, an open carry state. I do advocate for that. Um, and I advocate that we should take care of ourselves just as much as I advocate that we should work towards peace and negotiations as much as we can and non-lethal uh, action engagements. But if I learned one thing from the Ferguson protesters, um, and which, by the way, most of them, that even that I've talked with three years ago, have all been brutally murdered, uh, found in trash cans, found in, on the side of the road, and, and nobody in that community believes they've committed suicide or were taken out by other gangs. This was done by the police. And so um, they even said it when we went with them. They're like, if, if we're alive in two years, it'll be a miracle. You know, and most of them recorded these things so they could say, look, if you if they please catch me, I didn't kill myself. I'm not depressed. I don't do these type of things. I'm not, I'm not into that right now. And so what do you do with that? Right? Like, oh my gosh. Oh, I I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it I think people like James Baldwin spent a lifetime looking at the components of leaving America. Randall Robinson talked about this 25 years ago when he wrote the book, Leaving America, in which he posited that black people should leave the country. Um, if not to, you know, Europe or Australia, which of which he meant, to Mexico or Canada, learn Spanish, move to Mexico, get out of the country, because it's not going to change. Um, and it's, it's interesting just to see some of those things and what hope looks like, going back to Kendrick and Tupac, um, you know, in that sense, does hope mean that I leave and go to France, learn to speak French, become a citizen, take up a second. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not, and then it's not like, you know, there's any place on the planet that's perfect, but I'm, but I'm asking myself, what does that mean for myself? I'm in a multi-ethnic relationship. My wife is white, so my kid is mixed. That drives this era's ideology crazy, race mixing, right? This notion that we need to keep the races separate. We're going to be first on the list. So I'm just like, I don't, you know, I, 
Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't get a lot of engagements to go and, and talk with people, you know, about my, you know, membership with the NRA and whatnot. So I think that, you know, and I don't support most of what the NRA does, but I am a big, you know, at least for us here, a big Second Amendment uh, proponent um, in the sense that, hey, you know, if stuff goes down, I think we need to figure out. And it's not just the, the guns, but how do we harvest water? How do we look at aquaponics? How do I turn to solar power? How do we begin to look at things self-sufficiently? Because we've known, at least here in this country, we know that the government's not going to take care of us. You can look at Katrina in the modern era. You can look at Flint, Michigan in the modern era. You can look at the countless amounts of places here on the south side of Chicago that are being poisoned, and those communities all look like me. Um, that's not, and those things aren't just done out of happenstance. Um, so I think we have to begin to really interrogate those things and ask ourselves, as Christians, what that means. Thank you for that. I think that's so important. I can see why, like, as you say, it, it doesn't, because it's complex. It's actually saying that this is a much more complex situation than me, who's a middle-class educated white guy going, guys, violence is always and forever <laughs> wrong um, and turn the other cheek and all of that. And I mean, it was reading, it was for me, it was reading James Cone that really like shook that awake in me that it's like yeah. the, the, the question of rebellion and revolution and violence, whether it's, you know, what is often seen as an initiating act is usually a retaliating or a self-defensive act, you know, like that really challenged it for me that, yeah, like to, to just, you know, go universalizing peace, peace when there is no peace is, um, yeah, so problematic. So, yeah, I, but as you say, not an easy uh, thing for, for, for a lot of people to enter into because it's not a quick resolution. Um, it isn't. And I think that's what, you know, and that's what particularly white evangelicals, white Christians want. They want something quick. They want something that's easy, which is why, again, reconciliation makes sense for them. And they want something that keeps particularly ethnic minorities tamed, mm-hmm. well-mannered um, and contained. Um, and so once we start talking about independence, uh, that, you know, scares folks on many, many different levels. So you're absolutely right. And I think it is much more complex than just saying, it's like when here in the United States, we're talking about all oh, gun control, gun control, gun control. You can take all the guns away. That ain't, that's not going to stop any of the madness that's happening right now um, in this country. Uh, we have a much deeper problem and a much serious problem that people that have looked like me for history have bore the brunt of white people's ignorance to racism, to systemic oppression, and to violent overthrows. Every major function of African-Americans in the United States, whether it be for economic you know, stability, whether it be for political gain, whether it be for institutional uh, uh, historical wealth, has been overthrown. And it hasn't just been overthrown nicely. It has been overthrown violently. Uh, and you can anyone can study the history on that and look at those things. And sure, you have people like Shaquille O'Neal and you know famous people, but those are still insular in that they're not creating systemic change. Sure, they may give $10,000 to this organization or they may go and build a school over here, but they're not doing the things that, that people like Nipsey Hussle and Tupac Shakur were talking about, which is wealth building, right? System, systems that we own and we operate, right? And then pass those things on uh, as a legacy onto our next of kin. Um, that stuff is scary. And kind of going to that, even though there are the, the individuals who raise rise up potentially and, and have you know material success, um, you know that often is very predicated on not disturbing that status mm. quo. Um, exactly. Whereas if you're a famous, even if you be a famous athlete, like you know, like the Kaepernick example, being that as soon as you right. push anything in that in the space that has been um, created for you, kind of thing. Exactly. 
Um, exactly. Yeah, no, you got it. And again, that's what made Tupac so unique. And, and this is something that most other people haven't done, especially somebody as famous as if he literally gave away the shirt on his back. I mean, most people that I interviewed and talked with were like, man, his home, even though, yes, he lived up in the hills, his house was like a homeless shelter. I mean, this brother took in people almost to his detriment. In fact, some people even said, like, the reason he was getting into trolls is because he just took too many people in without ever really kind of evaluating some of those things. And that's really the only, quote, unquote, celebrity that I've known in modern times, at least, that was still popular, right? Let's, let me give some qualifiers there. That was still popular in, in, in selling stuff uh, that was that open and generous to creating a, a, a systemic change that didn't just involve their own pocketbook. And that's not to say that other people aren't doing good things. Please don't hear that. I'm not trying to say that other celebrities aren't doing great things, but I'm, what I'm talking about is systemic change in the sense that we can begin to build and get ourselves out of the mess that we're in right now. And a lot of it, you know, is, is hinged on economic mobility. Well, thank you for that. Uh, to close, um, yeah. no, though this conversation could keep going and uh, people <laughs> are like, no, I want it to keep going. That's the best reason to go and buy the there book. There you go. There's there you go. Get it. On the conversation. Get it. Get it. <laughs> um, but we play, I, I tend to play a game as we end. All right. Come on. Um, which is pairings. Uh, so basically we need to pair your book as, as, as one would in a restaurant. Okay. Um, right. so we need to pair it with a, a meal. Um, now this actually might come uh, in handy because I know someone on Twitter was actually trying to like, you know, get me to get your dry rub recipe out. Of <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. Yes. <laughs> but feel yeah. free to, you know, you don't have to uh, give that away, but we need a meal. <laughs> someone's sitting down to read the book. What should they eat? Uh, then we need a song a song that pairs well, which I think will probably be impossible for you because there's how many oh to choose from. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. a song and then another book. So they've read this book uh, and they've loved it and they're challenged mm. and they're ready to go. What's it, just another book that you think, hey, this is a good one to pick up next. So okay, song, book. Okay, so the meal. Whew. Oh my gosh, that is man, that's good. I like that. I got they get me thinking, especially as somebody who is in charge of all the meals, you know, for our family. So I, I do. I love cooking. Um, oh my gosh. Well, I'm a barbecue guy. I'm gonna say you should have some form of barbecue, even if it's just grilled veggie patties. You know, if you vegans and vegetarians out there, I know, I see you, I hear you. Even if it's just that. Get that a good bottle of wine. You definitely gonna want a good bottle of vintage bottle of wine, which or you know. If you you into single barrel, you know, uh, a, a whiskey and bourbon and whatnot, you know, you can get you, you know, pour you a little, little shot of that um, to begin to have conversations, you know, around this particular text. But definitely anything barbecue. If I had my choice, I would go with California tri-tip. Um, I'd go St. Louis spare ribs, um, some type of poultry uh, and some baked beans. So that's uh, all homemade, by the way, too. Wow. Um, and you said the music? Yeah, song. Well, you can go on an album if you want. I think I got hold Okay, it. okay, okay. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I think obviously people could be like, oh, he's going to go with somebody with Tupac. He's going with somebody with Tupac. Um, I, yes. I mean, I think that's important. I think his music is, is, is a one dimension. I would probably say... Um, at least for what I'm listening to right now is, is really almost anything by Sade and really Sade's early work, I think would go well 
with this particular meal and this, uh, this, this ongoing conversation and whatnot. Uh, and then you said the book, that was the third one? Yeah, another book, a book to read after this. Let's see. Uh, well, I love Kelly Brown Douglas and the work that she does. Uh, Stand Your Ground was amazing. Uh, black Sexuality in the Black Church. I think that was a really good one as well. So I would definitely point people to her work and what she's doing, especially, like I said, Stand Your Ground. I've, I've used that in courses that I've taught. Um, and it's an excellent, excellent book that uh, gets at, you know, some of the laws that have been put in place, especially after uh, Trayvon Brown uh, was brutally murdered. Thank you for that. And uh, as I said, people can go and get Homeland Insecurity, a hip hop mythology for the civil rights context. Come uh, on. Anywhere they sell books. Uh, you have other books, The Soul of Hip Hop, uh, Hip Hop's Hostile Gospel, and Heaven Has a Ghetto. And they should be keeping an ear and an eye open for um, Baptizing Dirty Water, which hopefully is yes. out uh, this year. Any other ways that people can connect with you or anything else you want to plug at this time? No, I appreciate that. No, absolutely. Yes. No, Baptizing Dirty Water, like I said, it'll be coming out. Uh, that's with Cascade Books, and that should hopefully be out maybe end of the year. Um, just depends on how fast the publisher gets everything going. Uh, but to stay up to date, you know, you can go right to White Hodge, or just go, actually just go to whitehodge.com. So whitehodge, all one word, dot com. And then you can connect with me on Instagram. And Twitter is where I'm usually the most active, uh, but you can connect with me on there. And then just get any announcements and a link to my own podcast page, Profane Faith, uh, which is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, all those places, Spotify, but whitehodge.com. Come holla at your boy and, you know, let's let's, let's have some of that barbecue and wine. <laughs> Sounds great. Oh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for taking the time. I really do appreciate it, Liam. Thank you. All right.